Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of If Women Were Meant to Fly, The Sky Would Be Pink. Episode 8, Charter Mania and Mother Nature. I'm Enid Tun. In this episode, my new co-pilot is rostered with me as permanent crew. We take on more charter contracts in a now very busy operation. And I experience several incidents that start to demand more of me as a captain. We were maxed out with charter inquiries so soon after our new aircraft arrived and after we had flown around the country as part of our tour to show off the King Air and crew. It was an exciting time, and before we knew it, we were taking bookings, certainly beyond our expectations. Shell Oil had the vast majority of slots for their executive travel, and we found ourselves traversing the country north from Lagos to Kano and Kaduna eastwards to Yola and Maiduguri, and as far westwards to Sokoto. Most of these were pickups and drop-offs for the senior tier of Shell executives. In addition, we often flew other oil company executives around the country as well, and our now often visited destinations were Kano, Jos, Abuja and Lagos. Abuja was the official capital of Nigeria and was still in the throes of design and construction. Business and officialdom were being transferred from Lagos and often necessitated numerous visits just to get things done. We would often find ourselves night-stopping and spending time between the Abuja Hilton and Abuja Sheraton hotels. Both were brand new and ornate. And I must say, a very pleasant experience. The buffet was fantastic. The rooms were really comfortable and the aircon was, of course, extremely welcome. The taxi journey from the airport was approximately 30 minutes through a series of brand new road links, including bridges. More than once, though, we would find ourselves travelling across a bridge that had not yet been completed, only to screech to a halt and have to stop and turn around to avoid dropping off the edge of it. Yes, really. Apparently, It was too much effort to put signs up to warn drivers of the impending danger. The construction firms left you to find out for yourself. Weird as it may sound, this wasn't particularly unusual practice in Nigeria in the late 80s and early 90s. I was quite used to driving along what would turn out to be a road to nowhere. The tarmac would abruptly stop and I'd find myself bang smack in the middle of the bush. Well, never a dull moment, that's for sure. Happy days. I now had a dedicated crew for the King Air, which consisted of two co-pilots and a relief captain, who was one of our Twin Otter training captains. One of my new co-pilots was an experienced former first officer on the Twin Otters, and had come to us from Aero Contractors, which was another aviation company in the industry. He was 25 years old, and a good, if somewhat nervous, pilot. Most of his experiences, like mine, had been on scheduled routes, so 
he had to hit the ground running and learn fast. He was polite and respectful, and I trusted him to have my back. He and I would fly together almost exclusively and were enormously busy. I treated my co-pilots as I would have liked to have been treated when I was one, and I always made sure that I listened to him and took the time to teach him what I knew. In those early days, it was all too easy to fall into the standard crew format of the captain is God, no challenge, and the co-pilot is just along for the ride. This was in the days before the adoption of CRM, Crew Resource Management, where crews need to work together, and effectively so, to carry out successful flights. I was determined to never use that approach. I wanted my crews to call me out if they saw anything untoward that I hadn't caught or if I'd made a mistake. For me, it would always be more important to break the chain of events rather than perish for fear of being yelled at. Too many times I had seen, even in our operations, situations which required the strength and ability of a less senior member of the crew calling out a dangerous and developing crisis in order to avert a disaster. The crash of one of our twin otters was a case in point. 5 November Alpha Juliet Quebec, the newer of the two twin otter aircraft, crashed on landing in Lagos after an unstable approach, resulting from a passing thunderstorm and the presence of wind shear, which was not yet readily understood by crews of the day. Wind shear can occur in the vicinity of a thunderstorm, even when that thunderstorm is considered to have passed. The abrupt change in wind direction and or speed can bring an aircraft down if you cannot or do not know how to recognise it. This was the case here to some extent. Running out of runway and airspeed as well as control on landing resulted in the aircraft exiting the runway and crashing into another stationary aircraft, having lost part of its wing. I lost a good friend that day, a man who I respected as a captain, and who was overwhelmed by what was presented to him. He was flying with a new co-pilot who had very little experience and who could not read the rapidly deteriorating situation to assist his captain. Trying to salvage an unstable and stressful approach to land safely is a tall task. Abandoning the approach to try again is most always the better option, but unfortunately in this case was not the decision made. Given that I was now the charter manager, my role was split into many elements and not least scheduling and rostering. When I wasn't flying, I was in the office and I was rarely home. In the early days of the operation, we were feeling our way across the country establishing contacts and relationships to fortify our network. This often consisted of trying out various accommodation establishments that were off the beaten track or that had been recommended. I didn't always have to stay in plush accommodation. I was used to roughing it with the best of them. But there were some locations that even I could not dwell in. One such hotel, and I use that word sparingly, was in the city of Maiduguri, in the northeastern corner of the country. We had a one-off flight for Coca-Cola and had left Lagos late for the one-hour, 45-minute flight. We relied on our ground handling team to arrange accommodation for us at destination, and all was well until we were dropped off at the hotel. 
From the outside, it looked pretty much like any other local hotel in the country. However, once we were taken to our rooms, it took on a more unpleasant aura. Like many buildings I had experienced in Nigeria, it had that unfinished look, and indeed not only unfinished, but derelict as a result of years of disuse and neglect. With our rooms across the hall from each other, we were greeted with wooden doors that had seen better days and just about met the requirements to be considered a door. The carpet on the floors, however, did not meet the requirements and were dirty and torn, faded and, quite frankly, disgusting. The room itself was small, in that if you turned around, you bumped into yourself. The beds had a couple of sheets on it, arranged with very little effort, and I wondered at that point if the room had actually even been cleaned between customers. Ugh, I know. Its only redeeming feature was the lone lounge chair that seemed fairly new. This would be where I would spend the night, sitting up and still in my uniform. The next morning was a struggle, but both my co-pilot and myself were extra vigilant on account of very little sleep between the two of us. This unfortunately would not be the last of the poor hotel accommodation saga. Most pilots, particularly in third world countries, have experienced the same. Experience will eventually dictate that you prepare for every eventuality and try to fit it in your flight bag. I still do this to this day, and my family find my ability to pack everything I could possibly need into a tiny bag very amusing, but ultimately useful. Coca-Cola was another company that we flew regularly for. They had sites and factories all over the country. These were the days of glass bottle soda crates, which were big in Africa then and still are today. Huge crate-bearing lorries would deliver regular supplies of every soda type imaginable in the 80s and 90s. Coca-Cola, 7-Up, Sprite, Fanta, ginger ale, tonic water, etc. Coca-Cola had huge factories, and so every time we were booked by them, we would end up on at least a week-long jaunt around the country. One such trip took us from Lagos, east to the city of Benin, further eastwards to Port Harcourt and Enugu, over the next couple of days, we would route northeastwards to Yola, Maiduguri, and then head westwards to Kano and Kaduna, before proceeding southwards to Jos, Buja, Iloring, and back to Lagos. One of the good things about these trips is that the customer generally always took good care of the crew and made sure we had everything we needed. In fact, one of my very first experiences with sandstorms would be with Coca-Cola on one such week-long trip around the country. Sandstorms were still relatively a rare phenomenon in Nigeria, but they weren't unheard of. On this particular trip, we were about to leave Abuja for Kano. Our departure time was 6pm, and myself and my first officer had arrived at the airport at 4 to carry out our pre-flight checks. It was starting to look dark and ominous out to the west of the airport as I walked to the control tower building to file my flight plan and collect the latest weather forecasts leaving my first officer to complete the aircraft walk-around checks. Thunderstorms were prevalent at this time of year and were always a concern. Our route would take us north to Kano, and if we were lucky, we may be able to get ahead of the line of weather that was approaching the airport. After I filed my flight plan and picked up the latest weather, I walked up to the tower to speak to the controllers. Up here, I had a bird's-eye view of the surrounding area, 
and the seemingly rapidly moving band of weather from the southwest. A huge band of thunderstorms could be seen, but mixed in with what seemed to be a developing sandstorm. I discussed the fast-moving situation with the senior air traffic controller, and because the weather front was escalating, it would now not leave us enough time to depart. In those days, we had no mobile phones and so had to wait until our passengers actually arrived at the airport. I went across to the passenger lounge to advise them that we would have to delay the flight until the following morning due to the weather conditions, and they were okay with that. By now, looking across the runway, I could see a rapidly advancing wall of sand. I raced out to the ramp where the aircraft was parked and was heartened to see that my first officer had started to tie down the aircraft. I grabbed the aircraft covers and made straight for the engines to tie down the propellers as well as plug the engine intake located at the forward part of the engine. This would be where the aircraft would take in most of the sand if it were to be left exposed. As we collected our flight bags and closed the doors, it hit and it was ferocious. Day practically turned to night with a wall of advancing sand. My first officer raced into the terminal with our bags Whilst I made a last-minute check of the tie-downs, the raging sand hit me from behind, and it stung. My Ray-Ban sunglasses had never come in handy as they did now. I could barely keep my eyes open or see. I took cover underneath the aircraft for some brief respite from the stinging onslaught. But once I was certain I could do no more, I raced for the terminal. The sand overtook me, and in an instant, my black trousers were white, and my white shirt was black. I certainly was not outrunning this storm successfully. I dived into the passenger lounge, just as the storm hit the building. I wish I'd had a camera. It was hysterical. I now look like a cement figure, and to top it off, I had sand everywhere. Yes, everywhere. I took one last glance out of the window at the aircraft, twisting and bucking against the elements, I wasn't sure it would be in the same parking spot in the morning, but we could do no more than leave it to the mercy of the elements that we were powerless to stop. We drove back to the hotel and arrived just as the thunderstorm hit the city. It was going to be a wild night. From my hotel room, I had an amazing view of the weather sweeping through the city and northwards. The sandstorm had died out and been replaced by tropical thunderstorms, one after the other known as the squall line. This could have extended for hundreds of miles, but for now I was just grateful to not be in the thick of it, trying to battle Mother Nature, who may pretty much have had a good chance of winning. I would live to fight another day. Thank you for listening. As always, your reviews and comments are very much appreciated. If you leave a review at one of our podcast hosts, do let us know. We would love to thank you by sending you an exclusive and amazing Pink Sky mug. Thank you to Lucy Ashby for the editing of this episode. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, please do so on our social media sites. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or just send us an email. Our email address is theskyispinkpilot at gmail.com or visit our website www.skyispink.co.uk In the next episode, the King Air becomes my home as I ramp up the hours, more incidents help to shape my command experience, and I begin training additional crews for the charter operation with some eye-opening training flights.
We would also like to take this opportunity to wish all our listeners, their families and friends, a very happy new year. Here's to a more hopeful 2021. Thank you and goodbye.